Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Mangum Reads. As per usual, I am Spencer, and with me forming my alliterative alliance of allegorical analysis, I have with me Sarah and BJ. How y'all doing? Alright, Spencer. Doing quite well, Spencer. Are you going to work your way down the alphabet now? I, I, presently, it's at random, and that one just kind of occurred to me this morning as a fun way to keep a, keep a trend going. I like but, it. Uh, I'll tr- I will try to entertain you going forward, BJ. I, I, I thoroughly I appreciate it. I will actively look forward to the X day. <laughs> God help me. I, I will think of something. Well, you can experience well. something exactly like that someday. <laughs> Well, luckily, unlike this current plan I've set for myself, uh, BJ, you gave us a nice break this week in terms of entertaining a short a short story. I did. While we delve into the more deeper work that is uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. BJ, what did you recommend for us this week? Uh, so the short story that I recommended is uh, Melancholy Elephants by Spider Robinson. Um, it is uh, Hugo Award winner, um, and it is also the title of a series of short stories that um, he released uh, with a, a handful, of, a collection of, of different stories that were published elsewhere and, and some new to uh, this collection. Actually kind of similar to, uh, I guess, what we've read last week. Um, and uh, unlike our last uh, Hugo Award winner, I actually quite enjoyed this one. Oh, Spencer. I, I, th- <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed... Um, a lot of the the stuff that the Okoro Four had, um, just not not Binti. Binti was I, I wasn't referring to the author. I was referring to the specifically the work Binti. Ah yes. Um, but th- this one was fun in the sense that it is probably the most quintessential science fiction short story I've read in years. Of where it is very clearly author has a bone to pick with a present issue, present social or political issue. Decides I'm going to set it in the future so I can talk about it with a worldly perspective upon it, and just starts writing. And insert melancholy elephants. Yeah, um, and I think he does a fairly good job of painting a picture, getting to what he needs to get to in about twenty pages, maybe not even. Um, and so I, I like that about the book, and and I think it is thought provoking. And I'm going to rely on the two of you, uh, a lawyer and an artist, to give your uh, <laughs> somewhat more unique perspectives on it than um, than I can. Well, I, I, mean, I feel like we can uh, summarize the plot pretty quickly because the characters are very much intended to be archetypes, and the plot is mostly using at his time, present examples to talk about the issue as if it's characters discussing events that happened 80 years before their own lives. Yeah. So Which I, mean I, the plot is mostly non-existent. Yes. It, it is two characters talking in a room about a social issue. Just checking. Yeah. So there's no plot. There are no characters. There's no world. It's just, here's something that you should think about. BJ, if there is no plot, no characters, no real world, and maybe we can talk about this at the end, but a question that I was thinking really throughout reading this um, is why is this a short story and not, for example, an essay? Um, or well, why, I mean, it, it, it is a short story, but why would, why would um, Spider Robinson choose to write it as a short story and not an essay? Well, I would guess it's because he's a science fiction author, and so this is something he's a little bit more comfortable with. Again, you are the person getting a PhD in (laughs) literature, so 
That that gives me no insight into why authors <laughs> choose to do what they do. I'm going to level with you right now. Um, I, I tend to claim that as a sort of death of the author paradigm, but it's really just because I have no idea at all. I mean, I, I'm... I mean, I'm happy to discuss it and you know, we can get back to it after we touch on some other mm-hmm. things, as you mentioned. Um, but I guess what I'll put forth fairly quickly is that, um, as Spencer said, when an author has a an issue that they want to discuss and they often use a story around it to have their audience, I think, relate to it a little bit better rather than just have it as a lecture or something a lot drier to just sort of read a, you know, a 20 point essay on why perpetual copyright is bad or why, you know, we should take care of our natural resources or um, some economic theory. And the last two were basically um, the Bobaverse and uh, Heinlein novel that was published posthumously that was basically a 300-page essay on the failings of economics and banks. Um, and I guess what I would say to you as why it's a short story as opposed to an essay the the book by Heinlein that I'm referencing, which is I believe called for us the living is a really rough read because it's basically an essay with the barest facade of characters. Whereas if you fleshed out the characters a little bit more and had a little bit more of a story, it would have been a much more enjoyable read that then had overtones of economics to discuss rather than, okay, we're just going to talk about economics and it's about as dry as an econ, you know, 250 lecture. Sure. No, and I think, I mean, I I get that point. It also makes me very much not want to read this book because if, if that is what you are calling a sort of thinly veiled 300-page essay, this was a thinly veiled 20 page essay for me. So I have other questions about that, but I can put them to the side for now. Oh yeah. No, I, I'm not recommending that you read the 300 page essay. It, it's, it's rough. Um, it's interesting, but it's definitely not 300 pages worth. I would also say that your derision towards essayist is like making creative nonfiction people roll around um, in agony right now. So congratulations for that. <laughs> I'm sure I will have (laughs) opportunity at some point to read essays that I appreciate. And there are some that I've read and I appreciate, but I think that a, the ham handed approach that a lot of sci-fi authors take towards, um, their short stories that aren't covered well or aren't covered reasonably well, I feel like does a, maybe does a disservice to, to essays. And I guess I will say that I do enjoy this story. And so I think that there's enough of that, of the story and the plot line to entertain the reader. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's close to that border. It, okay. it is 
It is very close. I mean, the aspects of the story are interesting. I mean, even the first paragraph is very much setting this in a future and foreign world before we even get into the extended essay and treatise that is the interaction between the two characters. And there are still little tidbits thrown in, but it borders on veneer at times. This is, I mean, I feel like the advantage that um, this particular medium has over an essay is the same advantage that fables have in conveying moral lessons of where it's presenting the philosophical issue the moral lesson in an easily digestible format for a wider audience in a way that's more naturally memorable than just an essay of points would be. It's like conveying a lesson through music versus just conveying it in a speech. Is that the particular turns of phrase, particular turns of setting, little artistic additions to otherwise what could be a rather dry format just make it inherently more memorable and give the reader something more to resonate uniquely to them in a way that I feel like an essay would uh, doesn't have the advantage of having. Yeah, I, t- I take that. I, I take that point, and I think that you're right in certainly right in what you're saying and what fiction can do. This is why I love fiction. Um, this sort of framing around uh, this discussion in Melancholy Elephants didn't really always work for me. Um, now mm-hmm. I did investigate the internet and discover that my um, my view on this subject is not shared by many people, um, so I am willing to um, I'm willing to back down from it. But it it was not it felt a little like I'm Randy to me um, in the way that it was dealing with a sort of quote unquote issue. It definitely had an element of Atlas shrugged about it. Um, it didn't strike me as quite as ranty or quite as I'm deeply offended by the world's contrary views to my own. Um, but, you know, let's get into the actual plot of it. We yeah. can, we can uh, address it as it comes in terms of where we agree or where we disagree. Uh, the plot is relatively simple in that we essentially have the uh, widowed wife of an artist who's part of a political organization of artists that are lobbying in opposition to a new bill that will change copyright law to essentially have it be rigidly fixed into perpetuity copyright upon initiation rather than expiring uh, 50 years after the death of the author, which is what it was at the time Spider-Robinson wrote this, now it's 75, would instead exist for the rest of time immemorial. She and her organization strongly oppose this and have used up a great degree of their political and financial capital so as to meet with a particularly influential and described as almost mummy-like senator who... uh, I don't, for some reason or other, controls the as a, a key role in the ultimate decision about whether this bill will pass or not. Maybe the head of the committee or something along those lines. Sure. Um, from the earliest chapters, it our main character is pretty thinly described as being... Um, we're not given much in the way of characterization about her other than that she seems to have maybe even some uh, references back to Spider-Robbins' own wife. And the main thing I drew from her is that she is... Um, either Buddhist or very much interested in Buddhist philosophy and the various aspects of maintaining, um, well, various um, principles and methods of um, maintaining your internal calm as part of the Zen study, which I believe his wife, when I was reading Wikipedia, was actually um, a, Zen, a, a Zen Buddhist monk. Hmm. So I thought there might be some intentional okay. comparisons there. Um, but as she goes about her day in terms of setting this out, there is an interesting foreign and otherness that's immediately associated with um, the world. More Even in the first paragraph, he's intentionally trying to set this as being in a futuristic setting, which is interesting about how much he then grabs the issues back to something that is so focused on the present. So like in her first setting, we get, you know, 
futuristic cars driving national destinations, um, a kind of world environment of where she just murders a mugger immediately upon leaving her door and is just annoyed about the delay and puts the body into a trunk of a friend's car to worry about it later. So he's doing a lot to frame this as being a very other world, which is interesting for how much he then grounds it back in strictly modern focused examples and a strictly modern focused issue in some ways. But yeah, I she, I think that that's fairly common in in sci-fi. I, I I guess I would sort of pl- point to um, like Blade Runner and yeah. uh, Carbon uh, Altered Carbon, where yeah. there are some things that are very completely foreign, but for the most part, both of those stories are you know they're cop stories and interesting ones, ones that I enjoy, but the the veneer of the sci-fi is uh, maybe more veneer to a story rather than integral to it, Um, which is what I would say he actually talks about in the introduction to this uh, series of short stories where he talks about um, sci-fi or SF and science fiction, which he actually... uh, kind of snobbishly distinguishes from sci-fi um as creating a fiction and that fiction tells something and it has a creation of another world and often that is in the future but it's much more creating a fiction of where you want to tell a story rather than using science and futurism to as the story um, and okay. so very much differentiating this from like Hollywood blockbusters and things like that, um, where the science and the future nature of the story is the story rather than a fictional world that the author's describing. I often heard it defined before as the difference between like, say, a space opera and, pro- and a proper science fiction that are you essentially putting a fantasy setting into a, putting a fantasy story into a science fiction setting or are you offering a, using a future setting to offer commentary on the present but i think it's fairly obvious which one this is um, <laughs> oh very much so so um very much uh, offering so commentary i have a i have a couple of questions um and maybe maybe it actually said this at some point but how far in the future are we meant to be in this story Based on the one example he provides in terms of um, uh, one of the copyright battles over... Uh, I think it was the Beatles. The Beatles songs. I think it was like That's 2050, right. 2060. Okay, so that, I there. Mean, the sort of near future, essentially. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay, that was a logistical question that I just sort of figured we were in that kind of realm, but was not sure how, how far we had gotten. Um, the other question is an actual question spencer you mentioned that the kind of random and everyday killing of this mugger that we begin the story with um or more or less begin the story with is something that is meant to be a sort of othering othering otherworldlying um moment in the story bj is that what that moment did for you um a little bit i it didn't do it as much as I think is it did for Spencer. I think for me, it was more like, um, hmm. I guess it was more like she was on a mission and mm-hmm. like more a state of mind and a 
competency, I guess, where it's just like she's on a mission. She had like she has her goals set in front of her and she's not going to let anything dissuade her from it. And also she's immensely competent just in general, like a mugger comes up to her and it's like, all right, I don't have time to deal with this. So I'm just going to take care of it. And like, yeah, she kills him, but it's, um, a, I think that that's the, that's the mindset that it gave me. But I think that spider Robinson falls into, uh, some of the same traps that Heinlein fell into. I guess I would say as a male writing a female perspective where the strengths and abilities that they give a lot of their female leads aren't, I think don't ring true in a, from a female perspective. And I I actually wanted to ask you about that because I feel like that I realized that this is something that would take you out of that that probably that takes me out of the character and I assume would take you even more out of the character where yeah. her interaction with uh, the senator's aide and her murdering of the mugger and things like that that I think are there to show in when he wrote this in like the early 80s that this is you know a very competent and strong woman that you know is comfortable with her sexuality and you know is on the same playing level as the males in the story but in a male way yeah that that it does for me, it does take it did take me out of the story although i feel like i was a little bit more generous with it when i was actually reading it in the moment um, because you have in quick succession, you have her killing this sort of stranger um, and dumping the body in a friend's car, which nice friend. Um, and then she ends up at the senator's sort of quarters um, or headquarters or whatever. And she is interacting with the aide and she has this weird inner monologue that is like, well, he's been really helpful to me. So when and if he propositions me, I will accept. And I was like, okay, those are two very odd like it it does smack of kind of like an like you said bj an 80s male version of what feminism would be um but i was more generous to them when they were actually happening in rapid succession but then that kind of as as a i guess as a display of ruthlessness let's say um as ruthlessness is a characteristic like okay you're building somewhat of a caricature ish uh, character here in ter- in terms of a kind of willingness to do whatever it takes to get what you want. But I feel like that wasn't really carried through throughout the story. Um, once she is actually in the room talking to the senator, that falls away. That, that's what struck me as odd about the intro, and it's why I wrote it off as just being intentionally trying to other the story, because very little of the characterization matters going forward. I mean, well, that's true this... as well, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, framing her, as you said, BJ, is very much a stereotypical 80s empowerment version of what they assumed feminism might be, of being you know, better than the male kind of style of designing it. But going forward, really all that proves relevant from that is her doggedness. And even that's not focused on, because originally when he, the senator shows any degree of resistance to what she's talking about, she immediately caves into depression and he has to open her back up to it and lead her back into it, broach the subject back to her. So, again, that's why part of the reason I wrote off most of the intro is just being intentionally trying to aggressively put this into a different kind of science fiction setting. 
because very little of it mattered ongoing for what he, the story and the actual well the actual direction the story is then going to go from there. So I are guess... you reluctant to say plot, Spencer? Yes, it's not really a plot. <laughs> it's it, it it is very much I'm writing down Plato arguing with a student kind of story, and then just putting a little bit of color around it to make it, to make it other, uh, more, more interesting. Um, so I guess what I would say with the dogness aspect, I I guess I felt that she was more dogged and was met with a hard no. And when, I don't know, I've talked to mentors and people and um, knowledgeable people about certain things that maybe I'm trying to convince them of something, or um, I guess I've had this fairly often in my career where I'm suggesting a scientific project or something like that. And there are a couple of different responses that you can get and some of them are a hard enough no that as much as as much as you're invested in your project or anything else coming from a variety of people that's a that's just you're done yeah. um and especially with somebody that you respect and maybe look up to in in their field um so when I've proposed projects to actually my current boss that I'm excited about and I'm like, oh, hey, I think this is a good idea. And it's met with, why would you, you know, somebody's already done something similar. Why do you want to put all that effort into it? Or I'm not interested in doing that in my lab. You know, if you want to pick that up later, then like, sure. But that's a those are even like nicer versions of it, I feel like what she got and, and she she essentially got there's no point in you even making the argument any further and also I feel like from a at least an outsider's view of politics like it's a hard enough no that I'm not even going to accept the donation that you have offered to make without strings attached mm -hmm. I mean, it would be disheartening I mean just like a from a legal standpoint, some of the most liberating moments I've ever had in the law of where I've become fully convinced that I have no chance of succeeding because it's almost a, it is almost a liberating feeling because then I can't lose. I've already lost. Only thing I can do is get better from here. I can say whatever I want for the next few minutes without it actually possibly mattering other than to potentially improve my position. But it is a very unique mindset you'll take when you actually are first told you cannot win about how you then respond or how you then feel about it. I can fully accept that, that it can be particularly soul-crushing in certain moments when you've invested a lot in the project for that moment. And I guess the other side of it is you get a little bit more flavor to her character at, um, a little bit further in where you find out that her husband's an artist who committed suicide because of the issue that she's representing of not holding uh copyright in perpetuity and so i feel like that i may it's probably partially me like having that lend credence to her reaction to the hard note that she gets from the senator she, she immediately yeah. contemplates suicide I was going to say, I'm fully aware that I'm probably projecting a sense of character that isn't 
as much there as much written out with that those pieces of information and trying to thread it together but i also kind of feel like that's kind of what you have to do with a short story that sure. is more quick brush strokes rather than uh you know fine painting no i think that's true and i will i will certainly say that um the moment although this is obviously, as we have talked about, not a story that is reliant on or based in sort of character development or anything like that. But the, the moment that I found most compelling in terms of character was learning the backstory of her husband um, and how she has come, how she has come to this cause. Like, I, I get that. I'm still uncertain about how that relates to her actions in the introduction, but... Um, I do think that that kind of motivation for her character does make sense. I mean, I can I can write a backstory to it that, you know, I can impress on the introduction, but it's not there. <laughs> no, uh, well, I would where, say Where, it's you not. know, it's like, you know, this woman that's basically, you know, put aside her grief at her husband's suicide and is single-mindedly pursuing basically what caused her husband to commit suicide and so you know it she's much more of a single-minded and flat flatter person up until she's basically told that there's absolutely no option and at that point she falls apart a little bit too and then has this conversation with a essentially a kind older senator and 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 then it progresses from there but but i i fully understand that that's not there let's address one thing just to lay it out what is her particular motivation why has she come to the senator what is she trying to do why is she opposing this uh copyright perpetuity bill um so 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 what she initially says is that Basically, there are finite numbers of arrangements of musical notes and colors and uh, words on the page. And basically, there's a finite amount of art that humans can produce and appreciate. And if we have copyrights in perpetuity, it will be the death of art. Because it's finite and because we have short memories, like we can continue to reference older art or produce new things. But at some point, the freedom of information and the uh, long memory now of our species because of our technology basically prevent the recycling and development of uh, twists on old art. That essentially human thought is almost by necessity to a certain point derivative that the ability to remember everything forever unchanged and unaltered is potentially the downfall of the human race following the mindset of the ultimately melancholy elephant that can never abandon knowledge and relearn it again or re or think or think of new ways to apply it that are a derivative but are exploring a new way of doing it um and so i the other thing that uh, spider robinson introduces is that artists are uh discoverers and researchers rather than creators. And so it's the discovery and research of ways of putting things together that are pleasing or interesting or, you know, whatever uh, descriptor you want to put on it, that that's what artists are doing. And so, Sarah. Yes. 
I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. How do you feel about that? Well, I think that it is, it is an interesting point that we have finite resources from which to make and assemble creative works to put out in the world. Um, whether that be in music, which I think is, is really the thing that is most heavily referenced here, partially because um, her husband was himself a musician and it was his sort of inability to create something quote unquote new um, that circumvented copyright laws and infringement um, that sort of drove him, that drove him to kill himself. Or if it is in some other medium, which are not really addressed, which I have some questions about um, visual art or sculpture or dance um, or writing, for example, they do touch on the idea that there are only so many stories that you can tell, which is a like well-traveled idea in in literary circles. You have kind of Bettelheim's understanding that there are only a certain number of stories. And depending on who you read, there are like different numbers of stories that are the only possible numbers of stories, which is already like a little bit suspect, right? Um, and so I think, you know, I think that there is some credence to this idea that A, there are limited options, particularly given this example of music where there are only a certain number of notes, there are only a certain number of um, kind of time sequences that they can be in, only a certain number of um, of keys that you can play in, a certain number of melodies that actually make sense and might be pleasing in the world. Um, but I also think that, I, so I certainly think that this idea of art for me has always been a kind of assemblage of pastness um, looking towards a future. So I think, I think that means I agree with the basic premise, although I think I disagree with um, the kind of perspective outcome of that premise that she gives. Is that vague enough? So, I think it's reasonably vague, but I guess, why do you disagree with the, the outcome, but agree with the premise? Or um, what, what do you feel is the disconnect? So I think that the disconnect for me has to do both with my understanding of copyright law, um, but also I'm going to go against my kind of author is dead moment from before and think towards an idea of kind of the, the, the conception behind and the historical moment in which um, artistic pieces are made, examined, um, and kind of speaking to. And I think that those are, are always different. Now, I think that the, the argument that they're making here in this sort of copyright in perpetuity, in perpetuity, is that right? Perpetuity? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, that sounds really weird to me. Um, is that... Dust of the writer, too. <laughs> yeah, right? I was going to say, um... <laughs> if you want, you can make the T a little bit harder, and that might sound better to you. Perpetuity Perpet rather than perpetuity. perpetuity. Oh, that is better. Perpetuity, thank you. Um, is that if you have copyright in perpetuity, then you are creating a stagnant society. And so, and you are creating a stagnant um, pool of creative and cultural works that kind of drive what culture is, what society is. And that because your kind of milieu is not 
changing at all, there can be no change to kind of the difference. Uh, there can be no change to the meaning or interpretation of works of art that might um, make that finite number of possibilities mean something different in a different time and place. I guess to me, it sounds like what you're arguing is that art as a an impact on the viewer or experiencer is something that will change with the time. But I, I feel that, like that yeah. that still doesn't that doesn't really address the issue of art as an artist where you know, it maybe you're not allowed to it's not that you're not allowed to recreate other people's art per se, but if you want basically to be recognized as an artist, you have to create something new. And if you're basically told, well, that's not new and like, yeah, you know, you can look at it a different way because, you know, it's 50 years from when it happened, but, you know, yeah, in, okay. in... Yeah. so, I mean, I take, I take your point. I think what I struggle with and what I struggle with in this argument is that, um, part of, part of what frustrates me in this conversation is that it is unclear to me what these copyright laws that are being discussed in this story would do apart from extend copyright. Um, but I think the reality is that we live in a time of art creation that is always stealing from other places and there, and, and that, that is expected and that is okay. Um, despite and above copyright law. Um, and so I, it's, it's a little confusing to me because art now is always, in my mind, is always derivative in some way, and it is responding to something and it is, it is taking into consideration and potentially outright stealing and using something else. And, um, we have like clauses in copyright law that specifically allow that. So I guess what if you, I mean, I can give examples rather than, you know, put this on you, but give examples for, from like my field, which is, you know, if you get scooped in science and mm -hmm. basically somebody else has already done what you're doing, I mean, apart from the money aspect, it's deflating to say the least. Well, that's certainly fair. And so I guess I think that there's only, there's one part of this story, which is, you know, the copyright and the making a name for yourself. But I think what's hinted at is the psychological suicide of copywriting art in the way that they're talking about. And so I guess different from my field which you know always seeks to push the boundary where it, it is very like it is very derivative but there are sort of always new presumably there are always going to be new things that you can pursue and, and do but going over ground that has been trotted on is not ideal and very much I wouldn't say put down, but not as interesting to anybody. Though yeah. science is 
science also more than any other field is built on the backs of those who've come before. It's built, you're standing on the shoulders of those who've come before you. I'd almost offer science as the ultimate rejection of copyright in the way that it has been applied in art, because you're encouraged to expand and build off what came before you, to copy and then grow and derive in terms of what comes next. I mean, in terms of intellectual theft, I mean, one of the famous examples is Watson and Crick, using directly borrowing research that informing or asking the consent of another fellow researcher was Maurice Wilkins or Rosalind Franklin? Rosalind Franklin. Was. Yeah, yeah Rosalind Franklin. Franklin. And they won the Nobel Prize for it without her really, really getting much the way of credit. That's a much more controversial example, but I feel like in science is inherently viewed as a much more collaborative field than art is structured to be and that you're meant to be constantly sharing your ideas. You're meant to be working together as part of a mutual expanding of the field Everything is in some ways part of the public commons because it's viewed as a group step forward. And that, but you, you would know more about that than I would be, Jack. Well, I was going to say, you should definitely read The Dark Lady of DNA, I believe is the title, if you haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that talks about R- Rosalind Franklin's contributions and, and oh, to science oh, yeah. and things like that. I haven't read that, but she's a fascinating figure, which I've read about. Um, but I guess what I would say is that part of at least for me the draw of science is answering questions and so if a question's been answered and you spent a lot of time basic and effort and you know thought power and resources answering a question that's already been answered you've wasted that time and so this is i think i have a couple of things to say this is kind of one of the differences and i think what something that you just said, um, BJ just clarified kind of where I think I actually differ with the premise of the argument being put forth in this story about the kind of finite number of options. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that I think that that works, or at least I, as someone who like half-heartedly learned to play a whole bunch of instruments and like that is my experience <laughs> of music. It is not composing, it is not like doing anything like that. Um, I played the piano 30 minutes a day because I was made to play the piano 30 minutes a day. Um, you did better than I did. <laughs> I, I was have, quote unquote made to generous. play the uh, <laughs> piano 30 minutes a day. I was put in front of a piano for you know 30 minutes a day and then just sort of said no. <laughs> I had my mother developed, this is totally a tangent, but my mother developed um, a sort of game and reward system whereby I could only read a chapter of my book if I had played the uh, played the piano for 15 minutes. And so in order to get to the next chapter of whatever book I was reading, I would play the piano for the 15 minutes that I was supposed to. Oh, that was a well-targeted program right there. This is how we end up with a 30-year-old English PhD candidate. Um, <laughs> she knew her audience. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's a smart lady, my mother. Um, but so I get, I can like, I get, I get the argument around music in some sense. Um, I just don't buy it. I just don't buy it with, I don't buy the finiteness with visual art, um, even with stories. Um, although I do, I do somewhat buy into the argument that there are only a certain number of kind of main stories that we can tell, the big arcs that we can tell. But I think that there are infinite permutations of that that are interesting and valuable. Um, and so, you know, I think 
Yeah, I just I just don't buy it. And and it's interesting because um, Borges gets at this in a really odd little short story. And we should read some Borges um, on this podcast, but an odd little short story where one man sets out to word for word rewrite Don Quixote, but independently of having read Don Quixote. Um, and so that that is his project. And it's the sort of question of like, is this a new work of art or is this the same work of art? Um, and we mostly come down, or at least I, I think we mostly come down on the idea that like, no, this is a new work of art. This is something, this is something different. And so I don't know what, to get back to my original kind of jumping off point from UBJ is that you said that science is concerned with providing answers or answering questions. Um, mm -hmm. And that is kind of the, where the creativity in science comes from. And I would suggest that art is concerned with asking questions. And I just don't believe that we're going to run out of questions to ask. I think that's a, an, so an interesting perspective, I guess the, the nature of art doesn't seem to change fast enough for, I, I agree, I agree with your premise but the actuality, like, I feel like the actuality lines up with the story a little bit more where there, and I, again, like, I feel like I know music a little bit better than I know other art. Um, mm -hmm. And so I kind of want to reference it. And I, I feel like that's a, that's a downfall of like my appreciation and knowledge of art. But I would say that the other thing I would relate it to is movements and painting and visual art. Um, but there are a number of pop songs that basically just steal chord progressions and tunes from classical music. Mm -hmm. um, I, I believe Mr. Brightside by the Killers basically takes Beethoven's Ninth and just like throws it into the the uh their song yeah and with the example you offered of don quixote i think the only reason he was able to do that was because that was a work in the public domain and if it, been a, if it had been a more modern work he would have he would have received a copyright violation for it and I, I think you know the author brings up west side story and romeo and juliet and i'm sort of disappointed that he doesn't bring up pyramus and thisbe um, <laughs> yes the old myth um, you know, it's, it's like, if you're going to reference, you know, all of the derivations, you should go back to like what we know, but there are many works of art in terms of stories that are well played and well enjoyed. Um, very many people love Star Wars. And to say that Star Wars is the hero's journey is like, you know, it, it follows the hero's journey so closely because he, he was a student of, I, I, I'm blanking on the professor's Campbell. name, that came up with the hero's journey. And he was just like, all right, well, I'm going to, you know, make a story that follows it exactly. But, so he, you I, know. He was, a, he was a student of Homer? Of Joseph Campbell, if you want to Joseph give a more Campbell, modern yeah. example. Well, but my point is that, like, 
these kind of reworkings and adaptations and mergings and all of all of that like i that does not make anything not new for me um that this is part of the work of art i fully agree with that but i'd say that kind of reworking depends on there being a kind of public domain in existence to rework things from oh i certainly think that's true yeah And I I think the threat that he's highlighting here is that what if a work upon being created never even had the potential of entering the public domain? What if every single idea that was pondered out was immediately privileged forever, and so there were no shared thoughts that were allowed to then derive their own forward? Well, no, I mean, I think that that's... I think that we are getting stuck in a little bit of a point of this was presented as there are kind of two strains here. What is the copyright law itself and how would that Mm -hmm. affect? And then what is kind of the role of art um, or the kind of role of of, um, novelness in art? Mm -hmm. Um, And I I mean, those are two very different questions. Um, Of course, the idea of perpetuity, I don't know why that's so hard for me, is... (laughs) ridiculous um it's absolutely insane here's a little bit trivia it does actually presently exist for two works there are two works that i know of that are actually do have copyright in perpetuity what are they uh they don't exist under united states law because we actually written to our freaking constitution that copyright has to be have a limited uh, amount of time copyright clause but English law allows the idea, at least, of a perpetual co- of copyright. Uh, specific examples would be the King James Bible is under uh, perpetual copyright for a few particular universities to print it. And uh, Peter Pan, oddly enough, thanks to a, a particular statute, actually exists in a kind of perpetual copyright, though only for um, revenues. It doesn't, she doesn't, the, the copyright doesn't get to control how the actual productions are done. Mm. You're allowed to do your, any derivatives you wish without... Uh, like without any control from the original creator or who holds the copyright today. It also brings up kind of one of the, or it gets gets at one of the kind of strategic questions that I have about the copyright law that is being brought up in this story. Um, and part mm-hmm. of the reason that I asked about how far in the future we are, because as if we are taking this as a sort of thought experiment, my question is, we have a whole lot of stuff that is in the public do- domain now and would presumably either be in some form of public domain in the future or they have done something to bring it out of the public domain. Um, so do we just, is is the point of this bill that we move on from now, from the point of the bill passing to um, copyright in perpetuity? And how do we deal with a sort of previously existing public domain? It, I, I will agree with that there are two logical problems with this. One of this being, as you said, there presumably is a public domain that already exists, and it presumably is even more massive than it is today from 80 years of further development. Uh, point number two, the book doesn't seem to entertain the idea that, you know, we are able to buy licensing rights with respect to copyright on a daily yeah. basis. It's how copyright works. That if you want to, you know, sample from someone else's song, you go and ask their permission, and they charge you a fee. Yeah. That, that, that. Well, Th- those are presumably those aren't those don't seem to be directly considered in this story because that's just not what its focus is. No, and part of where these questions come from is that um, 
spoiler, I worked for like three miserable months for Duke University Press doing international copyright. Um, so I have a weird but quixotic um, knowledge of copyright law, mostly not in the United States. Um, <laughs> and we bought copyright all the time where people waived copyright fees or whatever. But most frequently, we didn't know who owned the fucking copyright in the first place and we had to claim fair use. So I guess the, I think the premise of the story is that the information on copyright is easier to obtain in terms of searches. And I think the functionality that you're saying that, oh, you know, you just buy copyright or you buy the rights and then you can use it, you know, and go from there is almost a side point to what's mm -hmm. trying to be made, which is, okay, so you sit down to write a novel or paint a painting and essentially 90% of what you're doing is figuring out which copyright you need to uh, purchase the rights to and, you know, spend, and I'm sorry, Spencer, I'm going to cast aspersions on your um, vocation, <laughs> but you need Please. to... You know, you, you spend, you know, whatever days, weeks, months working on your painting, and then you spend a couple of years with a bunch of lawyers trying to figure out, all right, well, like, you know, this top right this? corner has, you know, a uh, uh, one inch brush with uh, this specific oil uh, painting content. And so we're going to search the records um, for, for this set of artists to see who, which copyrights we need to, uh, uh, you know, which copyright holders we need to contact to uh, validate this section of the artwork. And then, you know, next week, you know, in your next 20 billable hours, we're going to get to, you know, the, the inch below that. And it is, um, that's part of the reason I love his, uh, some of the examples he does from the real world, particularly the example of um, the My Sweet Lord song by George Harrison, mm -hmm. because that is a foundational case on the idea of subjective, of um, subconscious copyright violation, of where a person could just referencing in their head without any intention, without any active thought, sample from another song, and have that now be viewed for the first time ever as a copyright violation. It has been credited with potentially having a bit of a, st of a stifling effect on the artistic development because it has led, essentially, it has basically created a presumption now that any suit that is filed with respect to accusing someone of a copyright violation, that it's going to succeed or going to be too costly to defeat, and so they're immediately settled. And there are just so many example sense of where just even the threat now of, I'm accusing you of sampling my song, immediately leads the music, the music producer to settle the case. Just because that case set a standard by which doesn't matter what you intended to do, doesn't matter what you actively reviewed, doesn't matter what was in your head as you were writing your own unique work. The fact that you could have in the back of your subconscious mind even have been entertaining the idea of this other work is enough for it to potentially be a copyright violation that, is oh, a stifling bit of concern. Well, and that's what you have hit on exactly the point that is the, the final sticking point for um, her husband as well is the idea that this sort of the what was supposed to have been this extraordinarily original love song that he composed for his wife ended up being um, a folk tune from his childhood. And I, I feel like we've sort of danced around it and not actually said it, but there's 
I feel like one of the best parts of the story, which you mentioned earlier, Sarah, was her recounting of why, what her motivation is and that her husband composed this love song to her and, you know, went through a number of iterations and throughout a number of compositions they had and created this song for her. And it was their favorite, her favorite song. And then when he submitted it for copyright, it was found to be a derivation as you just mentioned. And so that was the impetus for suicide. And I think that that was sort of the most touching piece of this work for me. Was for me as well. I agree. I agree. Um, and so, you know, hearkening back to our first episode and our first episode where we had you, Sarah, that that would be my favorite scene of this uh, story. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think I would agree. I would agree with that as a favorite scene of this story for me as well. Um, it was, yeah, it was a very humanizing moment. In, yeah, in what is in what is normally or routinely a non-character driven story. Um, and I guess the other thing that I kind of feel really talks to the main idea of this story. And I brought up uh, Mr. Brightside by the Killers and there are another other examples in um, a bunch of hip hop that I like. And there are samplings and references that I really appreciate and then there are things that I really dislike and so funny enough I really dislike the killers using Beethoven's ninth but I really appreciate sampling and (laughs) where does that come from like where does that distinction come from for you and I feel like it's a shared bit of culture rather than a we found something and I don't think anybody's going to notice. And I, that's purely a personal impression where there's a lot of hip hop that samples things. And mm-hmm. so what I feel like they're going for there is here's something cool that we want to share with you that we like. And we think adds to this piece of art that we're putting forth. And then there are other songs that just, take and don't share a cultural touchstone Mm -hmm. and i feel like that it happens in movies and tv shows and um paintings and and a lot of forms of art where you can pay homage or reference past works of art or you or you can basically know about something and then pretend like it's something that you came up with and maybe and i'm probably projecting as (laughs) opposed to uh knowing the artist better but i guess that's my sense of um the two the the difference between sampling in hip-hop and and i um going with the killers and Mr. Brightside because it's one that I know so well and it just <laughs> bothered me so much. Yeah, I don't I, I I am do you all do you all know the book Steal Like an Artist? No. Okay. I do not. So it's 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 essentially a like 
sort of self-helpy, but self-help is not really the right term, but it's the kind of like how to do it book of like increasing creativity. But the basic mm -hmm. premise of it and the reason it's called Steal Like an Artist um, is this idea that like when artists talk about quote unquote inspiration, what they are really tapping into is a long-standing history of just stealing from each other and not caring. Um, so the history of art is a history of blatant theft sometimes adaptation and reworking, um, sometimes additive, sometimes um, a kind of translational work into a different genre, for example. But like the basis of art is this idea that, or at least according to this theory, the basis of art is that like it's all, we're all stealing from each other. Um, hopefully we're doing something new with it, but it's all stealing anyway. So can we can we acknowledge that and accept that and kind of move on to gain a kind of new level of creativity from that. And so that's that's what I keep thinking about in this conversation. Like, I don't know that I entirely agree with that point, but I also think this takes me back to something that you were saying earlier, Spencer. Um, you were saying that science is much more collaborative than art, um, which I swear to you that I was about to talk about how collaborative art can be. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, well, and I very, I very much agree that art can be collaborative. I think the the copyright, though, gives the ability of art to be restrictive in a way that science isn't codified as yeah. being as such. Yeah. So I guess to talk to that, there's a huge, well, white elephant, or, you know, sorry, elephant in the room, not white <laughs> elephant, where mm -hmm. patenting things in science, sure. like methods yeah. or... Um, there was a, a huge thing about patenting parts of the genome where oh, yeah. still being controversial. And oh, can we talk is? about that, pharmaceuticals? That's... Right. And so pharmaceuticals and methodologies and, and there are many things that are patented and by many people are seen as huge problems in science and the scientific community. And That's so true. I find it sort of interesting that you sort of brought it up as a, you know, this is super collaborative and it is up until somebody patents something <laughs> and then it just screws everybody. Oh, I remember the example of uh, when Jonas Salk invented the uh, polio vaccine, he went on an interview and they asked him, well, are you going to patent this? Who holds the patent? And he looks so confused at the concept of where his immediate response was, could you patent the sun? Uh, just because of how foreign it was, the idea that you'd taken a gift to humanity like this and patent it. But as you said, in terms of inventions, in terms of that aspect of science, rather than necessarily the writing of it, necessarily the research of it. But the ultimate accomplishment uh, is it's very controversial that, as we talked about, the quest for creation, that the end results of it can then be isolated and controlled by a few particular individuals, despite the purported purpose of benefiting mankind. So yeah, it's a good point. I, I, I was not going into the idea of how patents also um, gateway science in the same way the copyright and gateway art. And I would say even more to the point is um, when restrictions are put on the sharing of ideas it, it is a huge problem in science, and, and there's a whole bunch of very recent uh, cultural and political and social issues that have come up recently with basically the gating of scientific articles. 
mm-hmm. and yeah. there was e- even a very famous suicide fairly recently of somebody who basically decided that science should not have this ascent maybe not patenting but gateway um and basically made a lot of science freely available and there were some other issues behind that which i don't think this uh book club podcast might you know (laughs) is quite under the purview but i i think that it is such a that patent and maybe patent isn't quite the right word but sort of a gatekeeping of the distribution of information and knowledge is such a problem for our culture and so i think that the literal uh view that that it's a patent is less of an issue than the restriction of the use of ideas or methods Mm -hmm. and so if you are basically restricting the ideas and methods that somebody can use and call something their own that i think that's what's really being referred to here in terms of the patenting of artistic work and so if you know instead of saying i've made this painting i've made this sculpture i've made this something you have to say i've put my two cents worth on you know these 20 artists mm-hmm. um and again like i think that sort of the the thing in science is like you instead of saying like i got inspiration from these people or you know these were um other artists that that i i looked at and i liked their work you have to say you know this is my piece of art um you know a, a still life of a whiskey bottle and you know it's also by these other 20 artists because they did similar things yeah, art art loses a little bit of its sort of like inspirational and aesthetic quality when you have to cite everything. Okay. And and so I guess that I think that's more of the point of the story rather than like you're unable to do it, but more you have to give citations or you have to uh give up some of your um artistic ownership of what yeah. you've done. I, I mean, I also enjoy the concept of exploring of where, even if we say that, you know, 80 years in the future, the public domain is massively grown and it's a, a wide variety of tropes that authors and everything else can share from. If there ever was a point if we actually did put a perpetual copyright in effect, we would essentially be ending the further growth of that public domain. It would be putting yeah. a finite point by which the shared human consciousness would continue to grow, at least in terms of what we all can sample from or grow from. One of the one of my favorite examples just of how meaningful the public domain can be and how much it can influence culture and having something enter the public domain is um, an example from Christmas movies of where uh, Sarah very much enjoyed the uh, the very vehement fight that you and Lee and I had on the subject of what is and what isn't a Christmas movie. Yes, we did. But I think we would agree. Die Hard? I think we... It's not. Thank you. <laughs> what? <laughs> I was fighting in defense of Die Hard being a Christmas movie, and they were pissed as shit at me. I was even rec- suggesting Oh, it. I know, but you can't stand White Christmas, and it means you're a maniac. 
Okay, I didn't say so I couldn't stand it. I said I liked it, but I had serious problems with aspects of the plot and character You did not say that you liked it. You, this is revisionist history. You said you did not like it. <laughs> I, given the majority of the plot is Danny Kaye and um, I actually forget the name of the, fem of the major female actress that he's partnered with. Rosemary Clooney. That was Rosemary Clooney. That's right. Okay. And then Vera Ellen is the other one. Yep. Uh, them diligently working to manipulate two other people throughout the course of many years of their lives. I just felt very uncomfortable with that being basically the driving force behind the entirety of the plot. I was okay with everything with the general. I was okay with the songs and the character pieces and everything else. But that just always really rubbed me wrong. But returning to my actual point... Uh, one of the, I think we'd all agree that It's a Wonderful Life is a classic Christmas movie that is played every year and is frequently cited as being one of the great American films. The reason that that's the case is is because the production studio decided not to renew the copyright behind it. Did not do, even force the copyright behind it because it was an utter failure when it came out. It was viewed as one of Capra's great um, non-successes, one of his greatest disappointments that it didn't do better. And so one year when a studio that was to, when, a, when a network television uh, when, a, when a television network was trying to think of something to play over Christmas and had no budget to work with, they just looked through their archives of films that had no longer enforceable copyrights, found It's a Wonderful Life, and ran it. And then other studios realized, hey, it's free. We'll just run this. And it promptly became one of the most iconic American films around the holidays. That's the kind of freedom that a film entering the public domain has, that people can share it, they can make it their own, they can make it aspects of culture without having to constantly second-guess or question what the cost of it is or who they need to get permission from. Um, so it, 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 it's just an example I love to cite of where something we view as just being the quintessential American film or quintessential Christmas movie is in large part because this gatekeeping function just no longer applied to it. I, yeah, yeah sorry, I completely agree with you. I've heard that story before, partially. Spencer, you told me that story when you were wrong about other things. But Shut up. <laughs> um, one of the things that we have not mentioned thus far is one of the underlying elements of this story that makes that makes it go in ways that, well, I think that this conversation certainly about copyright in perpetuity is ridiculous even today. But one of the things that we have not um, talked about in this sort of like sketchily drawn society that we are in now is the fact that everyone is on some sort of universal basic income. And you do not have artists who are trying to make mm -hmm. a living through their art. And so yeah. the consideration of like paying creators for the works that they have created is no longer in effect. Um, and we are also, although I don't think that this is a this is a bad thing at all, but we are in a situation where they state very clearly that because people do not have to necessarily work in some sort of labor-based job or even work in some sort of um, unpleasant job, for their day-to-day -day income that over 50% of the population identifies as quote-unquote artists. And so the the premise for a lot of this is the idea that, um, like I said, although the idea of copyright and perpetuity is, is patently ridiculous, um, I think, that we do not have to have the parallel discussion of 
how do we incentivize artists to make great art? Um, so I, I just want to point out for our listeners that um, Sarah made some terrible puns there. Um, this is what I do. <laughs> and that I appreciated them. Thank you. I guess the the forced work is an interesting concept to talk about and something that I think is um, going to be more and more of an issue mm-hmm. as uh, we progress as a society. Um, and there's a short story that I suggested that I suggested Spencer read a long time ago, and um, it's called The Profession, or pro- maybe just Profession by mm-hmm. Isaac Asimov. Mm-hmm. And um, to quickly sketch out the plot is basically that everybody is sort of at the point where we don't really have schooling anymore. There's just sort of an installation of knowledge. And then people sort of figure out what they're good at and they go out and work in a very large uh, cosmic universe. And the main character is somebody who doesn't fit in. And I won't spoil the story because it's a really good story and I'd like you guys to read it at some point. Um, But there's a line in there that is basically creators demand to be creative. And so there isn't a, um, you know, you can't force people to be creative and people that are creative and want to make art or do science or do something that contributes something like that with their lives, basically force it upon the world rather than the other way around. I, no, I certainly agree with with that. I also believe, though, that what the one of the things that this story is suggesting is that we have a lot of like hobbyist artists here, um, which is fine. I'm actually not. I don't know that this is like a specific point that is that impinges on the story in any concerted way. Um, But what the story kind of elides by um, setting up a a society with universal basic income where people do not have to go to a nine to five job or anything is that a lot of people will um, create art in some capacity. Um, And I mean, the sort of art hobby divide is always a sort of fraught one. But the fact is that we live in a world where a lot of people who identify as artists um, need to be paid for their work, are frequently not paid for their work. um, And that copyright law, in some degree, was set up to protect them and their interests in these creative works that um, that that they own. Um, now that goes against this sort of law of copyright in perpetuity and as a lot of the copyright laws that we have in place now. Um, but by setting up this system of universal basic income, this story undercuts the argument that artists should be paid for what they create. So I, I think that it speaks more to the, um, psychology of wanting to create art Mm 
and the necessity of paying artists. And, you know, I guess it's interesting that it's a writer who is making his, you know, you know, paying, paying rent with creating art. And, um, interestingly enough, apparently had, uh, some very rough times and was, uh, supported by Heinlein for, or Heinlein helped him out financially. Um, and probably why he holds Heinlein in such high regard among other reasons. Um, but yeah, I, I think that he wanted to divorce the two issues because he's an artist and probably struggled and wanted to go in one direction and not the other. And I, I think that you have a very valid and reasonable point. And I think it's, I think we are in a society now that is both great for artists and terrible for artists where they can reach a much broader audience and possibly get paid for it and also much easier to rip off and steal their art um i mean the number of you know podcasters and music creators that have people that support their youtube channels and subscribe to uh, you know, a podcast channel and pay them every month and things like that are way higher than they were before and probably a little bit more like um, a an artist on uh, retainer or whatever, like, you know, the old lords and ladies that would have like, you know, painters and musicians and <laughs> you whatever. Have, yeah, that, that... you have to go out and find your patron. Exactly. Um, but that's more common now i'm sure than it ever was in the past but also the ability to steal people's art is more common than it ever was and there are many many artists that their works being stolen or they're you know they're not being supported when otherwise maybe they they could be or should be and it's an interesting little note i was reading out some other stuff that uh, spider robinson wrote and he was actually one of the most um, vehement writers that came out against some of the earliest Napsters of uh, sharing works by artists or sharing works by writers. Um, he wrote an extended article, which he almost almost ironically viewed as a rebuttal to his own work here, of where he said, um, let's see if I can find the quote, uh, some of my colleagues already react somewhat emotionally to ThiefNet and call for measures I personally find extreme. I think it would be quite sufficient merely to torture the vandals to death, to spoil their corpses and destroy their computers. Execution of their parents seems excessive, unless they're still of breeding age, of course. Not all information wants to be free. My stories and songs spiral only to be reasonably inexpensive. Um, so clearly he viewed there was a bit of a limit on uh, his own objections to copyright and the idea of it extending to per- perpetuity, or maybe even over the course of 20 years, I think this was written about 20 years after he wrote this, his own views uh, grew and nuanced somewhat. I mean, I, I think that there's part of it's a nuance and part of it's just like we're not at a point where artists have an income and they can just sort of do what they want and so they they actually need a copyright as support so i i think you know there are two sides to this coin um and the 
I think that's why in this story that there is a basic income, there is this complete obviation of financial necessity to, you know, the darker, dirty side of art, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, putting up finger quotes here where, you know, part of art is the necessity of the artist to support themselves to, you know, put food on the table and, and, you know, be able to survive to continue making art. I also feel like in some ways I had a bit more of a negative interpretation um, of what I thought the author was going for when he was talking about um, universal-based income and what effect it would have on society and uh, on professions. Because he frames it as, it's not that, you know, because we have universal basic income, 55-something percent of people have chosen to be artists. He frames it as, we just don't have jobs for them. We don't have any alternatives for them. They've turned to art because there just simply are no other professions left. Which I feel like in certain ways, almost belittling his own profession to a certain point of where these are the people that just have no other place in society, so they've turned to this. Um, I think it almost factors into a, a very sterile and lifeless view of the, fixture, of the future that he's painting throughout all of this. The only other person we see in the story most of the way is the senator who is diligently consistently described as being a lifeless animated corpse yeah that this is the future man that's in some way being painted of this is the world of where we've cured all woes this is the world where this is the world where you no longer have to work in society this is the world of where you can potentially live forever it is a hollowed out corpse without purpose um and where this idea of the creative creative sterility that's almost inevitably going to result as a result of that is just a further extension so I, I felt like a lot of this about, you know, the freedom of art, this universal basic income and how anyone can go create things if only we can find a way that um, the creative commons can be ma- maintained. He was also offering a pretty biting criticism of what some of the things the, the future may hold as we overcome a lot of these basic challenges that we view as things to be overcome, but maybe integral parts of the human experience that actually allow us to grow as a species. Yeah, I, I think that's a very reasonable view of uh what his thoughts are and sort of maybe where we're going. Um, I think that the very opposite view is Star Trek. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, and I don't think Star Trek's going to happen. Well, you know, Star Trek's have the idea that once we develop replicators and can solve all human concerns, that we will as a species dedicate ourselves to exploring and accomplishing new things because all of our basic necessities have been resolved. That's a very idealistic view of what humanity will do with instant matter creators. Yeah, and I guess I think that in some ways they're describing the same world or the same, you know, like a very parallel world where Star Trek is the version that is happy about it and the, you know, world that we might be in here in Melancholy Elephants is the unpleasant version where... Yeah, nobody has to work. Nobody has to really do anything. So it's just like, yeah, I guess I'll be an artist and, you know, I'll try some things and, like, I'll basically do maybe very little of accomplishment with my life because, yeah, there isn't really much to do. And so you sort of, like, waste away and do nothing as opposed to, you know, maybe you spend years and years and find those nuggets of gold in a well-trodden uh field and so i i think that they're very 
in some ways very much the same idea and just almost diametric opposites on that coin. I, I agree with that interpretation, and I think I sadly default more towards the cynical inertia view of what the future mankind will bring into that scenario rather than the questing-driven view that uh, Star Trek's panting out. Yeah. Hope for one, probably going to end up with the other. Mm. Well, while you all are over there inhabiting sort of Wally, I'm going to be over here stealing <laughs> like an artist. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming you can. I mean, it, it is interesting to see how the law has changed even since he wrote this. Of where... Yeah, so, Sarah, but you have a thought? Well, it was one, one thing I was interested in is the sort of shadowy presence of who is actually driving this law that presumably has gotten to the senator first. Um, Walt Disney. Uh, yeah, it's very, it's very clearly sort of corporation-based, but I mean, I think that, you know... In my view, we are we are currently living in a world, and presumably this is the kind of world that is meant to project out into this future world, um, that is like both very corporate driven, but also a bo- very corporation driven, but also um, there is a thriving interest in Creative Commons, in open access, um, in kind of a more transparent and open forum for creative works, academic works, etc. So I think that the possibility is there for both of them. So I, I think that the openness and interest in creative and academic works is something that is of the main character rather than of the world, I guess, or at least that's my interpretation. And that might be something that is of me and not of the sort of like actual world I live in either. Yeah. And and I, I, I think that we may be a little bit in ivory towers. Yeah. Um, Maybe a little bit. What? Um. What? How long have I been in school and not? Not quite yeah. as long as I have. Whatever. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess sort of the pursuit of knowledge and artistic creativity um, is something that is very important to at least the two of us. Um, whereas Spencer, you're hey. uh, the devil. So, <laughs> Except I vehemently agree Um with you guys in most of these issues with respect to my concerns about copyright and patent in a lot of these ways. Yeah, but where's this um, billable hour, Spencer? I mean, it's it's an interesting question of where, I mean, I talked about how the uh, Constitution codifies that copyright has to be finite, but the Supreme Court ruled about 10 years ago that, but Congress can extend what that finite definition is as much as it wants forever of where it can continue to add 25 years into perpetuity, and that, in their view, is not infinite copyright. I mean, um, I think a lot of these, um, we talk about corporations being the one that's driving towards it, but I think particularly in the United States, um, corporations have had a great deal of success in co-opting and convincing artists to support them about how this decision is ultimately in their interest in terms of protecting their creative work. That reminds me a lot of, uh, I'm gonna butcher a Steinbeck quote here, um, but uh, they asked Steinbeck at one point, um, why is it there wasn't a communist revolt in the United States? And he just kind of quipped that there's a particular quirk of American psychology that the poor do not believe themselves to be poor. They believe themselves to be temporarily aggrieved millionaires. And that 
there's an e there's a very successful means for all these corporations of where they'll just they'll talk they'll convince artists that we need to extend this out because it will help you in the long run. It'll allow you once you come up with a great idea to have more economic value from it longer. And there's then achieved a groundswell of support behind every time that these things are extended. I mean, just even in 2018, there was a new one that extended music copyrights uh, so as to limit various streaming companies in terms of their ability to work around copyrights. And yeah. I think that's in many ways going to continue to be the legal norm going forward. And I like I've been fascinated and um, I it's referenced every so often in uh, some artists work. Well, in, in songs like the actual percentages that artists get from music that they sell mm-hmm. and how low it is. And, you know, it's the record companies and, and everything else. And so I think that the democratization of the availability of art is a great and wonderful thing, but it has sort of, as you said, Spencer, like a very weird pushback from artists themselves because they have been told and convinced that the extension of copyright and the necessity of copyright and how things are done are the right way to do things. And there's sort of the counterculture of people paying for art to pay for art and people needing to pay for art to have access to it. And they're sort of two opposite sides of how people consume art. And it's interesting. Um, And I love the idea of being able to commission random people for paintings. And it was actually something that I seriously considered doing when I bought my condo in Illinois, which was finding an art student and just like having them paint murals on my walls. And, you know, because why not just, you know, pay an artist that somebody, you know, an art student, somebody that I like their work and, and we can come to some like reasonable understanding of how much like I want to pay and whatever else and, and having some art that I'll enjoy rather than going to some crappy store and finding it's like, okay, yeah, I like that painting and I'll pay like a couple hundred or, or, you know, whatever, whatever it ends up being. But a lot of artwork I feel like ends up being very expensive and it doesn't go to the artist. Um, I didn't end up doing it and it's a very (laughs) sore point between myself and my girlfriend that I literally never have anything on my walls ever and why uh, Levi's girlfriend Sam thinks I'm a serial killer but that's sort of beside the point. BJ I'll send you something to put on your walls. I have I have things to put on my walls you know I, I have artwork I you know I have paintings that my grandmother did a bunch of still lifes I mean Levi bought I think all of us uh, different prints mm-hmm. um, one year and my girlfriend has some you know wood pieces that she's burned that are lovely that I really like and I have one on my mantelpiece and so she was very upset when I didn't like immediately hang it up and I was like oh I really like this and then I put it away somewhere so this is a laziness problem not a lack of art problem yeah okay a little bit of art got it just making sure I'm on the I'm on the right page here so 
Oh, I was just going to say, the, we have not at any point discussed or like indicated the end of the story. Uh, which I would say I like the least of the entire story, really. <laughs> okay. I, I found the last three or four paragraphs to be just weird. <laughs> well, tell us about it, Spencer. Well, I mean, the last, she ultimately, through presenting this extended argument about the creative sterility that will inevitably result, about the downfall of human civilization if we were unable to forget, if we're all just, you know, monkeys at top writers endlessly creating everything um, over and over again without any ability to lose the pages and start anew, the senator is promptly convinced. He goes back against the fact that he's apparently already accepted an offer from somebody else to vote in favor of the bill and decides that this is the necessary thing that has to happen. And then there's about four paragraphs of where he kind of laments that this is now his downfall from society and that they must be best of friends because he is exiled as a result of what's happening. It, it, is that how you guys kind of interpreted what the last few paragraphs are? I guess I would say that there are... I interpreted it differently because your interpretation is unsatisfying and weird. <laughs> but valid. Okay, how did you interpret it? Please, give me a better way to read this than I did. Um, so, I guess I would say that he respects her and has come to understand her position, and basically she's shared a very emotional moment and has basically said, look, you're the most interesting person that I have dealt with in the past quarter century. Mm -hmm. And I will support the your quest and but that will basically mean that i don't that i can't interact with the world anymore because like my job and and who i am and how i've basically maintained relationships so far is because i'm a senator and i'm a politician and because you are because of your arguments and the um ideas that you have that have convinced me and changed my worldview i need to retire from that and i find you interesting and i'd like to be friends with you and i'm not going to be able to have this contact that i've had before so i'd like to maintain this relationship because you've presented ideas and things to me that fascinate me i Again, as you said, it's sort of like this, I'm not going to talk to anybody more because you're making me retire, so we're going to be best friends now. Yours sounded much more heroic than my description, so we'll go with yours for right now. So, but, but the other side of it is, I guess, in a more personal experience that you've had, there's somebody that you, used, that you had vague interactions with, and at some point you had a much more meaningful interaction, from, and then he told you that you were going to be friends, and that's been true. I guess what struck me funny about it was that it was such an abrupt moment of characterization in a story that has previously just used characterization as a kind of element of background. Of where I wasn't expecting any degree of character growth in the story, and it felt very not in keeping with what had come before, and so it kind of shocked me out of the story that, uh, that was uh, previously been framed. I, I think that there are touches of character development and character story here, so it wasn't as abrupt for me. Character and story, yes. Development, I'll challenge you on up until this moment. Sure. Char character glimpses, maybe not development. Um, but So what I was referencing is you and Lee. 
And Lee has told this story a couple of times, and at least once on this podcast, where, you know, you guys had talked a little bit, and essentially you were one of Levi's friends. And maybe sort of one of Doug's friends, I guess, but more like one of Levi's friends. And then you told the New York Mike story and maybe something else. And he was like, all right, we're friends now. And what was that? 10 years ago? 12? I don't know. It's been forever now. I mean, I think you can choose to be friends and do a sort of like, hello, we're friends now. Um, but I also think that is reliant on like actual on, on being actual fleshed out real people in the world for that to be believable and actually work 12 years into the future. And, you know, these are not too fleshed out believable people. (laughs) Completely. Like I completely agree, but I think, I think the other thing that the author sort of wanted, I like for, wanted to tie in because again you know the difference between a short story and an essay it's here's a burden that the main character shared and so there's some resolution to that and so you know yes i you know i think a little bit more development of the characters would have been nice to the story but Again, you know, it's a short story. Maybe as a novella, we would have gotten a little bit more character development. And I I don't think this was my favorite short story, but I think it was a reasonably good short story. And I had a good feel for, or at least somewhat of a feel for the characters in the world. And so because of the medium, I think that some of the criticisms that we have are in some ways inherent to the medium. Here's the interesting thing from my perspective, though. I actually liked it in large part because it was such pure distilled science fiction of where it had a clear subject it wanted to talk about. It put it in a science fiction setting with with a minimal amount of thrills and it presented it. And I kind of appreciated it as that bordering on an essay format in terms of it's almost its purity about itself. And I felt like this end almost felt ham handed and that it was trying to put character growth that didn't necessarily need to occur. It had accomplished what it wanted to. It really explored a very novel thought to me that I hadn't really gone into before and done so in an interesting manner in terms of logically playing out this issue that humanity must confront. And I just, I felt the character growth around the end just kind of detracted from that because it was exploring a different work than it was previously going through. Yeah, I think that's just the author. It's the other side of it. Um the, the same way that all of Heinlein's main characters and stories have rugged, self-sufficient characters that are, you know, proficient with weapons and, you know, statesmen, that uh, Spider-Robinson has characters that are shared feeling experiences. I'm surprised that, you know, uh, transformative drug experience didn't make it into it i mean he's very much a product of the 60s and 70s and the hippie movement he was wholeheartedly against vietnam i mean it's that the uh meditation the buddhism the uh shared experience and you know you can rely on others and you know we're we're all in this together is a very it's a characteristic of the author. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
probably knowledge of the author made me go like, oh yeah, you know, this is sort of one of his stories where, you know, if you read one of Heinlein's short stories and it was just like, why is this, you know, random dude a crack shot with a gun and able to farm and a whole host of other things and then once you read his the rest of his work he's like all right well that's kind of what you expect of all of his main characters and so whatever yeah i remember from uh, starship troopers that one of the things that, Ma- that uh, heinlein wrote was the quintessential nature of mankind is that we are generalists and that should be celebrated leave it to insects to specialize yes uh a quote that I that I dearly love. Um, though, though I enjoy the, I enjoy in some ways the Starship Troopers subverts the trend in that the main character um, Rico Juan Rico is actually really deficient in a lot of ways. It's kind of actually going away from some of his own tropes in that regard. But we'll we'll, re, we'll, we'll read more Heinlein <laughs> as time goes on. I, I love that we keep on flirting with Heinlein each each and every other episode. Yeah. Um, We'll, we'll get to it eventually, and I think in this more this episode a little bit more reasonably, as Spider Robinson was at least for a time considered to be taking up the mantle of Heinlein in terms of science fiction writing, and this story is dedicated to Heinlein's wife Virginia Heinlein, and so he recognizes that, and I believe that they and mentioned earlier that they had a fairly close relationship and were surprisingly close given their very different political views and very different uh, social views. Um, And so I think it's sort of reasonable to bring Heinlein into it. And I feel like this is a Heinlein-esque story where... It's looking at a certain position of what could happen in the future um, and the implications of something that we, on the face value of it, think of as very reasonable and how that could cause a societal problem. I feel like based on your description that Spider Robinson became friends with Heinlein's circa Stranger in a Strange Land and maybe not with his later work. <laughs> um yeah they're i don't know they're they're he he's impressively well a broad writer mm-hmm. um if you ever want to read one of the weirdest novels um i will fear no evil um Heard i would it. say is, i i wouldn't really recommend it <laughs> but it is more a foray into weird 70s science fiction i'm glad that you've addressed two heinlein works that you've recommended we not read over the course of this podcast yeah um that there are many books and stories that i can recommend that you not read that that, that could be a fun subject too (laughs) maybe we can just do a series of the things you shouldn't read um we'll have recommendations for the the worst novels we've read um but yeah I, i guess uh are there any other points that, that either of you want to cover? I think no, I'm good. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, I guess I, I, the, the last, I, I think you guys know how I feel about it, but I, I will say fairly explicitly, I, I enjoyed this story as a, and as Spencer said, it's a very science, a classic science fiction. Um, I think that there are definitely downfalls in terms of uh, 
basically all of the main things that we usually discuss in terms of narrative, <laughs> character, and plot, but I still enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the there were parts that were very heartfelt, there were parts that were very interesting, and they came together well enough that I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I'm definitely. guessing, Sarah, that you're not quite on that same page. I would say that I got the point. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. that, that would be my that would be my review. Spencer? Yeah. yeah, I I enjoyed it in the sense that it almost seemed to emphasize the science over the fiction of a science fiction story, of where it had a clear problem and it goes about the logical process of presenting it and solving it. Um, and I appreciated that for what it was and that it was an interesting problem I hadn't really pondered before. And I thought its way of going about explaining it and presenting it was interesting and engaging. I think it, 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 it uses the advantages that a science fiction story has over necessarily an extended treatise and making it engaging. Um, and I appreciated what it was going for in that regard. Um, and I think the, the other thing that I wanted to quickly mention, Sarah, that you touched on was in the moment you enjoyed it it sounded like and i enjoyed it a lot more in reading it the first time also in talking about it and discussing the premises yeah but in going through it a second or third time to try and come up with like and dissecting it a little bit more and and thinking about what i'm going to talk about i didn't enjoy that recitation of it where there are other stories that that we've read and that i've gone through that I've enjoyed rereading and I've enjoyed looking at more details and this definitely wasn't one of them. Yeah. And I think it, I think it really comes down to like my habit and my training is in a sort of deep textual reading, which this obviously like provokes interesting conversation. It deals with interesting issues, but the text itself is just not, it, it doesn't, it doesn't do it for me as a text as a gateway to a different conversation sure um but as a story it doesn't work for me there's not really much in the way of depth to it it's very much on the surface of what it what it wants to say and how it wants you to interpret it and resolve it there isn't much that you can really draw uniquely from your own experience with respect to it it doesn't have subtext because it's barely even the text that it's presenting (laughs) yeah that that sounds right yeah, I mean, I think that's a very fair review of it. Um, but again, I think you know, on the surface, it's reasonably enjoyable. Um, uh, it, it, it's going to be a, a wonderful contrast for what we're talking about next week because I feel like Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is about as polarly opposite on the subject of a fiction story as this one can be. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you're um, wrong, Spencer. I, I would say that. You know, it, it delves into characters and it's all maybe not characters. world development, but it, it is of a place, a time, and people. It, it, it's so focused on characters that it's presenting the city of Savannah as a character. And it's just the various people that then populate this separate character. But we're already exploring what's going to be a fascinating discussion point for next week. Yes, uh, and and I would say probably a couple of episodes. I would oh, say. Um, just, yeah. I think we, it's going to be really hard to cover it in one episode unless we want to do like a, a marathon like 
co- you know, six hours or something. I would say at least um, two episodes. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, unlike you guys, I'm perfectly content to stay up till three a.m. talking about shit. But you know, perhaps for y'all, for your, your mental health, let's divide this up into three, two or three. Okay, so Spencer, if you ever mm-hmm. want to do a marathon episode, I'm more than happy to do a marathon episode, but I will make you edit it because you will have to listen to <laughs> the entire thing and, you know, take little pieces out and, you know, shift things around. And so you not only have to have the discussion, but you have to listen to it again and again and put it together. I'd like to formally apologize for my hubris so that I'm not forced to endure that Sisyphean task. <laughs> Fair enough. Maybe someday I'll, I'll have you sit down and uh, watch one of these uh, editings. You know, me or Lee will put that through you through that you know mini purgatory. No, I, I'm fine with being that I'm doing this massive air quotes the talent and letting the editing be done <laughs> by more talented people than me. Fair enough. So uh, for for our next couple of episodes, uh, to our listeners, please uh, enjoy our uh, foray into savannah with uh midnight in the garden of good and evil and um i'm again going to be lazy and rely on sarah to uh help drive this conversation because um because this is your bellowick it really is um we are now finally finally um in something that i think i have a i have a foothold in and as is uh, my want to do at the end of one of these things, you can find all of our content on mangumtalks.com. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or other things, um, or you want to bother Spencer, I can relay the information. If you go to mangumtalks.com and click on the top right at Contact Us, you can give comments or anything else. Um, you can find all of our content, including GOT Got Questions with Spencer and Lee. Um, once in a blue moon, you'll get uh, updates from the NBA with Mangum Hoops with Lee and Levi Baxter, the, his best friend, the best man at his wedding, um, as well as Whiskey on the Weekends, which we have another episode hopefully coming up in the next couple of days. And uh, maybe some new content soon if Lee ever edits it and puts it out. Um, and you can find all of our stuff on Apple iTunes, Stitcher. Um, I personally use Podcast Addict and uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, have a good night, guys, and keep reading something good. Until next week, everybody. Bye, y'all.